Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. 1A is the program that follows Smart Talk every day on WITF. 1A is hosted by Joshua Johnson, inspired by the First Amendment. 1A champions America's right to speak freely. News with those who make the news. Great guest and topical debate. Weekday conversation framed in ways to make you think, share, and engage. And yes, that was taken from their website. Joining us today, the host of 1A, Joshua Johnson. Mr. Johnson, it's an honor to have you here in Harrisburg in our studio. Honored to be here, Scott. Thank you for, for the invitation. If you have a question or a comment, we know you do. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Of course, you're here in Harrisburg. We have an event here, our Premier Circle event That's uh, right. here at WITF, where you are the uh, featured speaker tonight. So I'm looking forward to that as well. 1A debuted the first of the year, January. 2017 has been a mother load of... Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I have sleepwalked through the whole year. This, please, what's possibly going on? A mother load of news. <laughs> timely could, the timeliness of it couldn't be any better. You certainly have had a lot to talk about, haven't you? We have, and it's it's kind of nice that we're not a news magazine, as it were, and we don't have to chase necessarily like the big story, quote unquote, big story out of Washington each day, which is often kind of who said what to whom and who got offended by it. We are much more focused on not only the news of the day, but also the issues that are affecting people. So when we make decisions day to day about what shows to do, we don't necessarily have to follow what's at the top of the headlines. It could be something that's just worthy of conversation, maybe something that is important that's gotten buried under the fixation with Washington, but that the nation would really like to talk about. So we've never, we'll never run out of things to discuss. And I think as long as we kind of keep our scope broad, we'll always kind of stick to the the ideal show we're trying to do. We envision ourselves as a show that is in Washington, but not for Washington. There are enough of those shows, and we're not trying to be another one, but we are trying to use the resources that we have being in Washington to help make more sense of everything that's going on. You know, it's interesting you say that uh, you're looking for those stories that may be buried, because that is something that you don't often hear in other media. Some of those shows that are for Washington that you're talking about, that you know, we bring context. That's what we try to do in public media. Your show in particular, bring context to these stories. And sometimes there are those stories that are buried underneath the headline. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I grew up kind of alongside CNN. CNN and I are almost the same age. And I remember growing up seeing that show Inside Politics with Judy Woodruff and mm-hmm. Bernard Shaw. And they would spend the hour talking about politics and policy. They did both. Or to put it a different way, they talked about politics, but they also talked about government. And one of the things that I think often gets lost in the shuffle, particularly with controversies over President Trump and what he said and what he didn't say and how he said it and so on, is talking about government, about the way our nation is being governed. We have great conversations about the big stuff, you know, the Affordable Care Act and and so and and you know military policy and so on. That gets discussed. But there's all kind of other government that goes on that is also important. And then beyond that, there's more to life than government. <laughs> there's more to life than Washington, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. And people's lived experiences don't always mirror what happens to us inside the Beltway. That's one of the primary con- cl- complaints about Washington, is that you are living in this whole other dimension that has nothing to do with me. But if we ignore all those stories, then we're just as derelict as, as they are. So our responsibility is to try to say, look, we have to talk about 
Washington. We have to talk about what goes on in the nation's capital. But what are you talking about when you're not talking about Washington? What's happening to you where you live? What's actually important to you? Are there day-to-day issues that maybe have hammered your community so much you're kind of numb to them, but that the rest of the nation should be talking about? Are there non-controversial things that don't make you tear your hair out that are worth exploring, that people would be curious to know about, that might enrich the way we view one another? And being the program that we are has given us the latitude to do that because there are other people who are focused very squarely on politics, of course, morning edition and all things considered and here and now, and they deal with those pro- with those issues. And so we're free to do a lot more, which keeps us sane, I think. And it, it kind of allows us to remember that we are more than our politics. You're much more than kind of the Jets sharks dichotomy that American politics feels like you're a whole person, you're human. And we, should be speaking to the entire human experience, not just the stuff that gets us ginned up. Former president of NPR is writing a book, or has written a book, and uh, it's gotten some attention here in the past week, uh, where he went out and lived amongst the people in flyover country, as, as it's been referred to. Yeah, I heard about that. Not in New York, not in Washington, not in L.A., and he had like his eyes open that uh, when it came to issues like guns, when it came to issues like religion, you know, these people are, are, are very, very intelligent and very smart. And uh, they this is how they live their lives. And the things that the media is interested in in Washington, New York and L.A., not necessarily. What do you think about that? And, you know, I've seen some criticism, some blowback on that, that, uh, oh, you you pulled the old stunt of going out and living amongst the little people. But still, you know, the point that it raises is how do do media in big cities like Washington, New York and L.A. stay in touch with people across the country? Well, I I think I'm less concerned with his argument, because if he understands NPR, then he knows very well that that is not who NPR really is. NPR is the only national network that has stations in literally every part of the whole country. There are some communities where the NPR station is the primary source of broadcast news, uh, including communities that are not very profitable for larger companies to, to serve. And I think he knows that. I think he touched upon something that is the larger concern, which is the perception. I, Whatever he wants to say about NPR is, is his business. My responsibility is to try to kind of evangelize for what we're doing now and for the kind of work that happens now. I think if you listen to what NPR's actual coverage has been, particularly during the election, I think we came closer than anyone else to actually telling the stories of the whole country because we are in the storytelling business. We're not in the business of doing a show with four panelists in four different places, like five boxes on your screen, the host and four guests or eight guests or 10 guests and calling it coverage. We actually show up. I mean, you can talk about visiting people in West Virginia. Why didn't you just contact West Virginia Public Radio? They do this every day. You can talk about, you know, going pig hunting with somebody down in in Texas near the border. You couldn't just call Texas Public Radio or KUT in Austin or KERA in Dallas or KUHF in Houston. Like you didn't know that there are a thousand stations across the nation that are doing their best, that are sweating and and agonizing over the way that they treat their communities. You, you, You didn't know. The former CEO, you were unaware of what we do. My real concern is that there's an audience out there that won't listen to his argument and go, bull, we know better. And that's our responsibility. My actual fear is that we who are in public radio now, not someone who was in public radio then, are not doing a good enough job of telling our own story, of making sure that the nation knows who we really are. So when they are presented with this argument, they can say, actually, I'm a member of my local station, and I hear what they do, and it doesn't match your description. But that's not his fault. If we don't tell our story well, 
That is entirely our fault. He can say whatever he wants, but I'm responsible for crossing the country, speaking to people, making sure we do the work, and making sure that not only our coverage reflects that, but on a more personal level, that our relationship with you reflects who we actually are, so you can be the judge. And by the way, it doesn't really matter what the CEO of NPR says. It matters what you say. You're the community that we serve. If you don't like our coverage, I want you to feel empowered to contact your local station and say, hey, I live in such and such a community and I heard this story and and this was my concern. I wish you had talked about so-and-so. If I can be of help pointing you in the right direction, here's my number, here's my email, thank you very much. Mm. That's the way you do it. Instead of just saying, well, I wish my liberal friends knew more conservatives, weren't you a journalist? Can't you send us a source? Can't you make a suggestion? What was the last story you heard that presented this problem? Where was the problem? Who might the editorial person be who can fix this? Why don't you contact Michael Oreskes, the president of NPR News? I can reach him. I know you can reach him. Why don't you contact the the program director of whatever station you heard that story on and say, hey, I used to be the CEO of NPR. Can we talk? Complaining from the outside is exactly what everybody thinks they're supposed to have to do with public radio. That is not the way we're built. We are built as a community institution, as a network of institutions that you always have access to. So my concern is that he is going to make the rest of the nation think we're just like everyone else. We are not. Our door is always open to you. Don't buy the picture that he's painting. It is inaccurate. We know who you are, and we would love to know you better. Well, the pig hunting is uh, a specific example he gave in there. The, he, I think he concluded in, in a humorous way that he was not a very good pig hunter. Well, yeah, but why would you let that be your image? Like, I, know. The, I, I, exactly. I It just feels crass to yeah. me. Let's uh, take a phone call from Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Uh, hi, jo- uh, Joshua. Hi, I uh, enjoy your program. Thank you. And uh, I, would, I must say that it is a worthy successor to Diane Rehm. I Let me just respond to what you just said. This wasn't what I was going to say, but I think you just gave a wonderful and passionate uh, defense of public radio. And, and this is what makes public radio different than so many other media sources, uh, because we're really out there, public radio is really out there in the community, uh, you know, finding out what's going on, and that's why I'm a passionate listener. My actual question for you is, uh, unlike the Diane Rehm show and some other call-in shows, you don't take uh, telephone calls all the time. Sometimes you do, but more often you take uh, responses from Twitter and email and so forth. And I'm wondering what the thought process was in doing that. Thank you. All right. Thank sure. you very much for your call, Jim. Sure. Yeah, I, I have to admit, Jim, uh, I was really skeptical when our executive producer said, we're not going to be taking live calls every day. I was like, well but we're a talk show and people are kind of expecting, don't you? Mm, are you sure? But I, so I, I was really skeptical about this. But the idea is that there are, because we are a program that's trying to have a broader national reach, there are, among other reasons, there are markets out west who just cannot participate because when we're live on the air, they're running Morning Edition mm-hmm. and no one's going to part with Morning Edition to air 1A. What it allows us to do is it allows us to curate responses in a different way. It allows people to think through what they're going to say before they say it. It doesn't mean we will never take live calls, but we do it more tactically and we ask whether or not this particular topic would be well served by letting people just kind of connect in real time or whether the topic is one of those things where we have a specific kind of a call out and we want a specific kind of a story and we want to make sure people have time to gather their thoughts, record it, hear it, decide if it came out the way they wanted it to come out, re-record it if necessary, and then drop it in our inbox when it's ready. So it's really to give us more flexibility in terms of the way that we engage you. Yeah, you do it a little bit differently than a lot of as you saw. I just take a, took a live phone call, and a lot of times you're, you're recorded. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com. 
Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is 1A host Joshua Johnson here in Harrisburg to uh, speak tonight at WITS Premier Circle Gala. So uh, we're very honored to have him here on Smart Talk and with us tonight. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, the phone number, one 800 729-7532. I want to get to a couple of emails here, Joshua. Tom says, I'd like to say welcome to Central Pennsylvania. I genuinely hope that you have an enjoyable time. I also hope that you get a chance to take in some of the local culture and the fair. How's it, how does it feel to be in Trump country? This is a legitimate question. When friends visit here and see the Make America Great Again hats and Trump flags, they walk around like they know something that everyone else doesn't. Do you empathize? I do empathize, but let's be clear. This country does not belong to any government leader, let alone our head of state. This is not Trump country. This is my country, and it's your country. It still belongs to us. Yes, I understand the, the point of the question, but one of the things we deal with a lot on 1A is who we are as a country. And, I mean, it's, it's baked into our name. 1A is named after the First Amendment. So a lot of what we end up talking about is who we are how we were structured, you know, what does our constitution really mean, et cetera. And I think that this question about Trump country is a, is a worthy one. You know, today on 1A, we're going to be talking in our first hour about the soul of the Republican Party. We did a show a few days ago while we were visiting Minnesota Public Radio about where the Democrats are heading and whether or not some of the concerns over President Trump can be turned into political wins for the Democrats or whether they still can't quite get their acts together, as some Democrats say, they're not really cohesive enough. And today we'll be talking about Republicans and whether or not this idea of Trump country still holds sway. One of my concerns going forward is how we're dealing with one another and how politically polarized we are, I feel very comfortable here. Like, y'all are lovely people. <laughs> I'm not worried about being here. And I think implicit in the question is an assumption that I might be uncomfortable here. But what is that assumption based on? You don't know me. I don't know you either. Why should we make that assumption about one another? I'm concerned about the way that we polarize each other, and I think that there is a risk. And this is part of what 1A is intended to deal with, is creating a space where all kinds of people feel welcome. Granted, to ask questions like the one I was just asked, and it's a worthy question, I think baked into it is a larger concern that we might not be able to deal with one another, that we're turning into that kind of Jets-Sharks dichotomy, and nothing gets done between us as citizens if we view ourselves purely in that way. So I'm very comfortable being here. I don't care who you voted for. <laughs> if you voted for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or, you know, or Denzel Washington, I don't care. <laughs> My primary concern, I kind of care if you voted for Denzel Washington. But that's not the point. The point is, I don't care what your politics are. My larger concern is that we treat you like a human being, that we allow you to tell your story, that we allow you to tell your story in your own voice. And that we deal with the issues without demonizing or stereotyping you, no matter what your walk of life may be. You said something just a few minutes ago that struck me. You said about you, and I, I got to thinking. You are in a unique position with a national talk show, a daily national talk show, to hear what people are thinking, what the country is thinking. Obviously, we are a divided country. I mean, there's a lot of division uh, across this country, but. What issues are resonating with people today from your observation, from your seat in hosting 1A on a daily basis? What issues are resonating with people and what trends, if there are any, that you've noticed? Well, I mean, the, the hot buttons certainly resonate. That's why they're hot buttons. Mm -hmm. So all of the issues that you might think that are already in the top of the news, they, they resonate. I don't think they're there to just gin people up about things that don't matter. But it's it's kind of great when we do one of these shows on any number of other fun topics. People, they just wake up. Whenever we do something on NASA, people are very mm -hmm. fired up. We got plenty of people in our audience that are fired up about space. And granted, that's our audience. I'm not intimating that our audience is a proper cross-section of the nation. We don't know that. But we're trying to be as, as much of a cross-section as possible. Uh, we... You know, we we do we do a monthly movie club where we say, hey, we're all going to watch this movie and then talk about it for an hour. We never lack for responses. I mean, it, it's 
we are as diverse as we've ever been. The question is whether or not our media and programs like 1A and Smart Talk and others will reflect that back to people so they feel, oh, you're thinking about the same things I'm thinking about. But in terms of which way the wind is blowing, I try to stay out of the trend-making business. Um, I do think we need to have more conversations like the one that is happening nationally today about the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. I think that Pennsylvania has been hit extremely hard by this, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and other states. And we, every time we've done shows about the opioid crisis, we've gotten a tidal wave of responses. And we keep saying, you know, even among our editorial staff, we'll say, like, we need to come back to this topic. We need to come back to that one. That's one we need to come back to. It's, it's the things that actually hit you where you live. We're, we're trying to kind of set the trend in a way. We're trying to say, hey, we see something that's not discussed. Let's discuss it. And then let all those other news outlets follow our lead. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take some phone calls here. Kathy is in York. Kathy, you're on the air. Good morning, Good morning. Um, Scott and uh, Mr. Johnson. I am so pleased that you're on the air today. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to make a comment briefly and then ask a question. Um, your show is one of the reasons that I am remaining calm through this year. Um, It's easy when I hear the daily issues that are coming uh, from news sources to think that the sky is falling. And I like a lot of the things that are on NPR. They are my primary source for news, Um, not my only. And uh, your show is one that I will tune to even when I've tuned out other things because it usually has a a tone and a, a courtesy in the way you deal with people, in the way you respond to people's questions and differences. That is what I think um, we in America are all about. Well, thank you. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. So I'm interested in how the show was designed, because I was a um, regular listener to Diane Rehm, and I, I thought, oh, my gosh, whoever comes in after Diane has a huge challenge and one of the things I appreciate is that you have a completely different show, and yet it, it seems to be just perfect. Kathy, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, I'll give you the as much of a condensed version of how we designed the show, because we're still kind of designing it, but so far so good. One of the things that was early in the design is what WAMU, the station that produces 1A, wanted to keep from the Diane Reem show and what it wanted to change. There were a number of things that we definitely wanted to keep. I mean, I grew up listening to the Diane Reem show, so we already had a lot in common. You know, devotion to civil conversation, a curiosity about all kinds of issues, a, a deep and deathly allergy to double talk, and a belief in the power of public radio. So those are all still there. We knew we wanted to build a show that was very tech savvy, that was very much uh, in social media, that was very web native. We wanted to build a show that could be platform agnostic, which just means whether you listen on air or online or wherever, whether you discover us on Twitter or Facebook as a podcast, you will still get an excellent experience. And we wanted a show that we could kind of co-author with the audience. So that, again, getting back to doing the voicemails. Sometimes when we get voicemails, we'll hear, oh, a lot of people are commenting on X, and it will shape the way we build the show. When Diane left, the day that I was announced, she before she came on the show and made the announcement of who I was, she sat me down in her office and she was like, look, in case anybody asks, I've been doing this for 37 years. I have not been pushed out. I'm done. <laughs> it's time for someone else to do this. I am moving on. Have at it. Which I only say to say that there was no real tension over the handover. Diane could not have been more gracious or more graceful in the way she exited that particular stage. She handed it off. Her show ended. We built a new show. She didn't hover. She didn't make suggestions. She never gave me any advice. She allowed us to build a brand new program. And so... What we have been able to do is just kind of figure out where we want the show to go. And we're still figuring it out. But we, we're trying to speak to what's happening today. We're trying to figure out what makes for a good conversation, what questions we can ask that will elicit a broad conversation that will get people to tell their stories. We're trying to be incisive. We're trying to figure out where the sore spots are and go dig into those 
not just in a way that will exemplify the emotion, but that might talk about solutions. And to Kathy saying that we help to keep her sane when it feels like the sky is falling, I'm glad that we're able to do that for you. But I don't judge the feeling of the sky falling. One of the things that I try hard to do, and hopefully this is why the program feels like a safe, welcoming space, is to accept people where they are emotionally. Your emotions about the news are not a bad thing. You're probably emotional about something that is really important to you and your family. And that's something we should pay attention to. It doesn't mean that you're just this histrionic, emotional, freaking out person who's losing your mind over nothing. You might be upset over something that is really worth talking about. And the way you feel is part of that story. So what we're trying to do is honor those feelings and help you work through them, not around them, but through them to deal with them directly to talk about them in a compassionate way. And then once we've dealt with the emotion, then we can get on to talking about the issues. Once we've kind of calmed things down and dealt with your heart, then we can get into your head and say, okay, now let's try to make sense of this and let's see where this might go from here. Were you there before, as the program was being formulated? I mean, how much of an, imp to, uh, uh, you know, an impact did you have on the formulation of the show? The show's formulation began long before I got there. Mm -hmm. Our executive producer, Rupert Allman, actually published an article in Current Magazine, which is a trade publication for public media, that basically laid out their score sheet of what they were looking for in the new person, which was a way of saying to basically the station system, here's where we want the show to go. So they had begun thinking of it before I got there. I helped with uh, some of the design elements of the show. Uh, I came up with the program's name. I helped with the remixing of the theme. You know, I helped with some of the aesthetic of the show, but in terms of the, the soul of the program, WAMU kind of knew what direction that it wanted to go in. And they knew they wanted to build something new. If they just wanted to do the Diane Ream show with insert new host name here, I never would have taken the job because who wants that job? I don't want to try to fill Diane Ream's shoes. They're size nine and they're pointy. There's no way I can fill her <laughs> shoes. I would rather build something new. 1A, the name itself. Uh, a lot of people very early on understood where that name came from. From time to time, it still has to be explained, though. Mm -hmm. This year, we have probably had more discussion about the First Amendment of the conversation than we have in the last 50 years. Why 1A? Talk about that significance. There are two meanings. 1A, as I said, is the First Amendment, which to me is kind of the basic rules of the road for how we deal with one another in a democracy. The freedom of speech and press and expression and protest, freedom of worship. It's kind of the basics for how we try to avoid making our connections as citizens, we try to prevent it from being a demolition derby. And the First Amendment is designed to protect the people you don't like. It's not designed to protect the speech you like. It's designed to protect unpopular speech from encroachment of government. So I feel like because we're trying to figure out how to deal with one another, it made sense to make that kind of our North Star. The other meaning of 1A is I used to work in public radio in Miami with WLRN, which works mm -hmm. in a partnership with the Miami Herald. And the Miami Herald calls its front page, page 1A. And those are the kinds of stories we're trying to do, those 1A stories, the ones that are above the fold of the paper that are the big stories that everybody's going to talk about, but they may not be talking about it as deeply as they could be talking about them. And then the stories below the fold, which aren't big breaking news, but they're interesting, they're compelling, they say something about us, they reflect something of us back to ourselves, and they're worth discussing. So it's kind of a dual meaning about the way, the kinds of stories that we want to talk about and being a space to examine the way we deal with one another today. Let's take some more phone calls. Otto is in Gettysburg. Otto, you're on the air. Yes, thank you very much, gentlemen. I'm uh, really fascinated with your topic. Uh, you have given me a tiny, and I stress the word tiny, glimmer of hope that uh, my uh, passions, my thoughts, my concerns uh, will actually receive a, a listening ear. Uh, your guest spoke earlier about double talk, and he was right on when he uh, used that term, because I believe that the vast majority, perhaps almost all politicians, uh, are experts at double talk. They, you know, they tell you that at a listening uh, conference, oh, we want to hear what you have to say, and then they completely ignore it. I don't go to those kind of things. 
Uh, but I think what I would suggest is that uh, you uh, put on the air some examples uh, of uh, 1A uh, stories. Uh, and I'm prepared to give you an example, if you'd like. Sure. Okay. Uh, I have uh, been an environmental educator for almost 50 years. Uh, it is a passion. I'm still in the workforce at age 70. Uh, the, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, the modern world with computers and Xboxes has, uh, has caused a disconnect uh, for children uh, from nature. They, they are just disconnected. Rachel Carson, the famous uh, lady who discovered DDT, the effect of DDT, said every single child in the world is born with a sense of wonder. And now I am uh, responsible for, uh, for uh, encouraging that sense of wonder. And these children come as part of a class, for example, or a scout group. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, uh, they're like parched, uh, parched uh, uh, sponges in a desert. They, they don't—all their sense of wonder is gone. Yeah, I don't, we'll talk and, about that, okay? Yeah. All right, thank you very much for your call. I have to say that when you were talking about the trends and topics with our program, and I don't know whether you've experienced this or not, uh, before you respond to, to Otto's phone call— The environment is one of our audience's favorite topics. When you talk about the the kind of topics that resonate, environment topics just resonate all over. We always get a lot of phone activity. Oh, yeah. People responding. But, you know, you can... uh, Yeah, I don't don't know anybody who doesn't care. I mean, I think all Americans care about the environment one way or another. Yesterday, just yesterday, and Otto, I swear I'm going to get to your point, because I think you're actually, I think you have a good idea for a story that you should actually pitch to us. When we were in, as I said, we just came from Minnesota. We did an hour about the debate there over their natural lands, where they have to figure out what to do with their copper and nickel mining, potential mining lands, without hurting the environment. And one of the first things that we did was we clarified, this is not a black and white issue. It's not like the people over here care about the environment and not jobs, and the people over there care about jobs and not the environment. Everybody in the room cares about the environment. Everybody in the room cares about jobs. They just have different ways of going about it. And it doesn't matter whether you consider yourself liberal or conservative, whether you're urban or rural. People across this country, I don't think anyone wants to see the environment destroyed. So it's one of those issues that requires nuance. It requires context. And it requires off the top, when we do these conversations, a clear explanation that this is not about pitting these people against those people. There are no heroes and villains in a democracy. There's people you agree with and people you disagree with, but there are no villains, especially when it comes to this topic. We just need to be clear, rank and file people, they basically care about the same things. They just have different ways of going about it. With regards to Otto's idea and the larger thought about kind of the topics we pick, you are, and I don't know if we say this enough on the air, we probably should, you are always welcome to pitch ideas to us. 1A at WAMU.org is an email address we check all the time. It goes to all the producers. We look for ideas. You are always welcome to leave us a voicemail, 855-236-1A1A. In the menu, there's an option to leave us a story idea. You don't always have to leave us a, an idea about what we're talking about. If you have something you think we should be talking about, feel free. We'd love to hear it. I think for something like what Otto suggested, the way we deal with those is we say, okay, we, we love the topic. We figured out a focus. Who do we book? Like, that's the key. Who are we going to talk to to tell us this story? So if we were going to do the story about, say, kids and learning about nature, we would probably want to talk to someone like him who deals with educating young people. We might want to talk to someone from a tech company who's helping to bridge that gap. I mean, I don't know if you've ever played with virtual reality. I have a VR headset for my PlayStation. But if I can sit in the cockpit of the Blue Angels plane in my VR headset and get a sense of how they fly and how close they are to one another, there's got to be someone creating VR experiences that will teach me about the Grand Tetons or Tierra del Fuego or, you know, Mount Fuji. I would be thinking about who we could talk to to illuminate that. So... Bottom line, great idea. Keep them coming. You're going to see things that we don't always see, or you might pitch an idea that we have pitched among ourselves, but then the news gets in the way, and we just forget about it. Like we, it, it helps. It really makes a difference to know that you care enough about the show to help us 
co-author it, to help us co-produce it. it. It's one of the best things you can do for us as a listener. We're running out of time, and I wish we had more time to, you know, there's so many other issues out there. But one thing I would like to ask is you make a point, and when there's a description of the program 1A. It also makes, it puts an emphasis on uh, the trying to help people find solutions with some of the issues that you're discussing. Uh, it seems as though one of the reasons that this country is so divided is that we are very quick to point out the issues, point out the challenges, point out the problems, but never reach solutions, never try to find that solution in the middle. Compromise is a bad word for, for many people out there. So talk about that and how you try to help people understand, find solutions, what are you looking to do? I think the first thing I'm looking to do, and this is above all else, you know, we, of course, we talk about contextualizing an issue and having experts who can talk about solutions and trying to book people who are working on solutions themselves. But the first thing I think we have to do is to give ourselves permission to feel the way we feel right now. There was a social scientist by the name of, I think, Susan Harding, Dr. Susan Harding, who came up with this concept of the repugnant cultural other. And what she learned is that cultural groups define themselves more by who they hate than by who they like. If you're uh, repulsed by the same people that repel me, you're probably very much like me. Come join my tribe, the repugnant cultural other. This isn't an American thing. It's a human thing. This whole jet sharks thing that I make fun of. West Side Story worked because it resonated. It's like, yeah, we know people who are like that, who just can't get over their hatred for one another, and they don't see that they have more overlap than they want to admit. One of the things that we have to do is give ourselves permission to get through this period. I try very, very hard never to impute judgment on any guest for any reason, including their hatreds, including their fears, including their misgivings, because there are things that I hate. And there are things that I'm afraid of. And there are things that I have misgivings about. I try to challenge them, but for God's sake, I'm human. <laughs> I can't always stop them. And you can't either. One of the things I think we have to do as a country is just get it out. We have to, we got to lance this boil. We got we to gotta get it out in the open air. And until we open it up, it can't heal. And I worry about us being such a noble and thoughtful and intellectual conversation with not too much emotion and, and no histrionics, just very intellectual and erudite and thoughtful, that we prevent people from being themselves. And we prevent people from just saying, I'm afraid of you. I don't like you. I don't know you. I don't want to know you. But I'm trying to protect my family. I'm trying to keep my job. I'm trying to be a good citizen of my country. And you feel like the enemy to me. Now, that may be an awful thing to say, and it may be exactly what needs to be said. And public radio, public media is the perfect forum for that because we're built for that. Like, we know how to do this without judging you for it. And so I want to make sure that people who come into our studio, who turn us on, know that you are welcome just as you are. We may not agree with your views. Our guests may have sharp questions or criticisms for your views. But you, as a human being with thoughts and feelings and emotions and fears and loves and wants and needs, you are welcome just the way you are. There's no other way for us to take you. If we don't take you as you are right now, right here, we'll never get where we need to go. 1A host Joshua Johnson. Look forward to hearing you on the air here in about 15 minutes. No, it's John Donvan today. Oh, it is? Yes. Okay, I was wondering whether you this You've got episode... all of me you're going to get uh, okay. today. <laughs> Joshua, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. What is leadership? In the context of this program, it often focuses on leadership or lack of leadership from government. But there are leaders in all walks of life that are making decisions and setting a course for people every day. Business leaders are a great example. JD, JD Evolution 2017, presented by John Deem, is scheduled next Tuesday in Harrisburg. It's a gathering of business leaders interested in exploring and developing a template for implementing purpose-driven leadership. Our guest during this portion of the show is John Dame, business leader and consultant. Mr. Dame, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us on the phone is global business leader and inspirational speaker, Brett Pyle. He'll be speaking at the conference on Your Extraordinary Why, Living a Successful Life of Significance. Mr. Pyle, welcome to the program. 
Thank you so much. Great to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. John Dane, I want to start with you. What is leadership? For me, leadership is uh, the ability that any individual has to be able to influence people in a positive way, an affirming way to accomplish things that they might not have thought they could. Now, when you say in a positive way, there right. are a lot of people. There are a lot of people out there. Just because you are in a position of authority, mm-hmm. you're the boss. You're the general manager. You're the president. You're the CEO. Does not necessarily make you a leader, right? Right. That's correct. That's positional leadership. That comes from a position of power. Doesn't guarantee that you're any good at what you do necessarily. So that uh, you know, le- real leadership comes from people's willingness to follow on or your ability to encourage them to do something that they never thought they could. Why is leadership important in our society from business leaders? Well, I kind of look at it this way. Uh, if you're a business leader and you have that kind of influence, I would I would liken it to this. You can throw a pebble in a pond, and if you're good as a leader, what happens is those people that in those ever-growing circles of the ripples that go out from the pond, the leader touches those people closest to them in their organization and influences them in a positive way. They go home and influence their families and their communities and expand that to the world and what can happen. We can see what happens in any walk of life where great leaders are at play, and when they're not, you can also see what happens. And it doesn't matter what institution or organization. We have all sorts of good examples of leaders and many bad ones, too. The conference itself. This Mm -hmm. is your third one, right? That's correct. Okay. Why is there a need for a JD Evolution 17 conference? I believe there's, well, the purpose is to do exactly what you talked about at the beginning. My purpose is to enhance the life of each person that I touch one way or another. And the Evolution Leadership Conference came out of the fact that I believe that there is a lack of great leadership, and the only way that I could make a difference was to touch more people more frequently in a way that would add purpose. You know, purposeful leaders make a difference from somebody who's not purposeful. And that's why I asked somebody like Brett to come and talk to us, because I believe that he can enhance the lives of those people, and also show them ways to be more self-reflective and better leaders. I want to talk to uh, Mr. Pyle here in just a moment, but you used the word purposeful, Mm -hmm. and and I was taking that description of the conference directly from your website. Mm -hmm. Gathering of business leaders interested in exploring and developing a template for implementing purpose-driven leadership. Mm -hmm. Define purpose-driven leadership. Today... No matter how old you are, no matter who you are, you want to go to work and you want your work to have meaning and difference. You want it to be a place where you enjoy going every day uh, to work. And so often we have organizations where that's not the case. Purpose-driven leaders kind of look at their employees, those people that work with them, their colleagues, as more than just tools to make a difference. They look at them more than just machines and that they these are meaningful people. And I, I like to think of it this way, that leaders who are really good at, at uh, thinking of purpose like to make those people that work with them a little bit better at the end of the day every day than they are at the beginning of the day than they leave. And th- there are lots of different ways that you can do it, whether it's having a higher purpose in terms of making a meaningful difference in sustainability or making a difference in the kind of product that you that you deliver and understanding the difference that it makes in an organization. Uh, I just think that being clear about that and the elements that go into helping sustain, let's call it an ecosystem for an organization that's a little bit better than just going to work is a big deal. Mm. So let me turn to Brett Pyle. Uh, and Mr. Pyle, your, uh, your speech will be on uh, your extraordinary why, living a successful life of significance. I mean, I think we all want to live a life of significance, but touch on that a, a little bit further. What do you mean by that in this context of business leadership? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great question. I, uh, I've enjoyed listening to the dialogue here just a little bit, uh, and John's uh, definition of leadership really resonated with me. 
you know, I think we all go to work or we wake up uh, and even if we're not working, we're so focused on the things that we're doing that often we forget that our, our, our best self flows from who we're being in any, any given moment. And, uh, you know, John and I mostly work with large groups, CEOs, executives, folks that are tasked with doing lots of things. And if all of their emphasis is on that and they don't take the time to get reflective, they, they might be successful, but they may not have mattered in the end. You know, get so hung up on climbing the ladder of success only to discover it's been leaning against the wrong wall. So what we do in this workshop, which is really a passion for, for me and occupies most of my life these days, is we take a day away from the busyness of life uh, and business to reflect on life and business and ask some of those big questions. Uh, and most of those really get to this idea of purpose, which we find when we ask some big, deep, probing questions about our why. Why am I doing anything I'm doing on a day-in, day-out basis? Let's talk about that. I mean, when you say, why am I doing this on a day-in, day-out basis, what are some of the other questions that you drill down to? Well, you know, even starting there, whether it's personally or business-oriented, it's the perfect place to start. Because here's the deal. You know, we've got a limited amount of time uh, while we're here on this planet, and then we're going to be dead. And the question will be, have we mattered? And until we start asking questions like that, we I don't think we really get to what the core of who we are is, as people. Uh, let me give you an example. I spent most of my career uh, working in the oil and gas industry. Well, what does oil and gas do? Well, we find the oil and gas reserves underground. We extract it from the ground. Uh, we refine it. We send it to market. and We sell it to customers. That's what we do. But it doesn't really get to the passion of people. At least it never got to mine. So I was like, why do we do this stuff that we're doing? And let's engage our teams in some big, deep questions about the why. And ultimately, if you can view the whole oil and gas industry as an opportunity uh, to give people warmth, to bring light into darkness, to, to give people mobility and the ability to travel to the places that they need to go to, to be who they need to be to the, the people that they love the most, I think then you start tapping into passion and you get into some really uh, productive conversations with folks and you get irrational loyalty from them. They're not just coming in and ticking a clock, but you've got all of who they are because you've, you've really touched their passions, their emotions. I really loved your prior caller, Joshua, talking about uh, giving people the ability to be emotional and be who they're going to be in any given setting. And I don't think we really get to that without asking some of those big, deep questions about the why. Why are we doing what we're doing on a day-in, day-out basis? You know, something that struck me when you were describing uh, your background in oil and gas and, uh, you know, going to work every day, because we all do it. We, we take our jobs for granted very often, and yeah. we don't sit back and think, okay, yeah, I do have a passion about this, or I don't. I'm not happy with my job. Uh but why am I doing it? Who does it have an impact on? And when you think you take that big picture point of view, you, you probably if, if you are happy with what you're doing and you're passionate about it, probably gives you some satisfaction. Now, here's a question that may not be very popular with a lot of people, but I'm sure there are people that, you know, when they hear about a, a conference for uh, business people and CEOs and leaders, they think, well, what motivates a lot of these people is making money, that they want to get ahead, that they want to make big money. That's not always the case, is it? No, it really isn't. In fact, money as a motivator tends to demotivate and break down intrinsic motivation more than it actually escalates it. If you incentivize somebody to do what they really want to do and love to do, you've actually stolen the joy from, from them. People, uh, when you get the best out of people, they're not doing it because they're getting paid. They're doing it because it, it flows from who they are at their core. It's tied into the things that they can do. It's tied into their mental acuity and their intellectual capacity. It's tied into their passions and their emotions. And then the big piece for me, and the, the, the piece I really like bringing into business and personal conversations is uh, the spiritual element of this thing. And by this, I mean, what's your conscience counseling you to do in any given situation? And have you taken the time to cultivate a meaningful, intimate relationship with it so that it steers you rightly? And some of the things we do in these conferences is we, we examine situations where individuals, businesses, uh, entire societies can actually become complicit in evil 
by not taking the time to make conscience-based decisions as well as emotional ones and passionate ones and everything else. And so, you know, it's these big, deep questions that we get into in a conference like this and that we've done now to 500 different uh, organizations of CEOs around the world. So uh, as you can tell, I'm, I'm quite passionate about connecting people to their purpose and making sure that they are making the most of this one shot they have while they're here on planet Earth. John, your background is in broadcasting right here in uh, in central Pennsylvania, and I'm sure you're very passionate about that. Your whole family was. Uh, but when did you figure out that you had a passion for helping other business people realize their passion? Well, for all the years I was in broadcasting, probably 30 here in South Central Pennsylvania and beyond, I dealt with many different businesses. You know, un- uh, unlike this entity, we were a commercial broadcasting radio station. We went out and sold advertising. So I was into literally hundreds of different businesses every year. Uh, then I started a network syndicating talk shows nationally, much like this. Mm-hmm. And uh after I did that, I was looking for what would be meaningful to me, and I decided that I wanted to be in a business that would be dealing with CEOs of companies. I found that uh, for me, making that difference would be a great thing, and I could make a bigger difference in the world. Take that a step further, further and about four years ago, I had a coach that I used, uh, and we, we did this program called Contribution Quest. And what I wanted to do was to find out what my contribution would be. And I found, for me, making a difference with leaders was where I wanted to be, and that's where I'm staying. Mm. We only have about 30 seconds left, and I want to thank both of you for being with us today. So the particulars on the conference, uh, are there people in our listening audience who can participate? Right. Uh, You can go to the website, evolutionconference.org. Uh, there are a few tickets left, just a few. And I did speak before I came. One of our major sponsors is Vistage International, the world's largest CEO membership organization. And for anybody that's listening here today, what they would do is pay $100 toward anybody who wanted to go. So you just put in Vistage in the promo code, and you get $100 off a ticket if you want to. There are a few left. John Dame and Brett Pyle, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks. Scott, thank you. Appreciate what you do. Coming up on tomorrow's program, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We're going to be talking about domestic violence. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality.